Kristen, one of the movies we'll be talking about this week is Shaun the Sheep movie. Oh, sheep. It's a new animated children's film about a little sheep from a small uh, British farm. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an American. I'm from California. I live in New York. I have zero familiarity with sheep. Well, I don't, have I you know, never met a sheep? I mean, I probably met, I mean, you know, at, at the Prospect Park Zoo. <laughs> but, you know, uh, at the petting zoo. But I've never, you know, I have no familiarity with sheep at all. Do you? They're kind of cute, aren't they? Oh, they're adorable. Yeah, I have to say my my major familiarity with sheep actually came from living in England for a year back when I was in college. Oh, okay. And I remember one time just being out in some pastoral place. Maybe I was on my way to Cambridge. I don't know where I was. I, I traveled all over England when I lived there. And I remember seeing all these sheep and um, they had blue backs and I'm like, oh. I'm like how does a sheep end up with its back blue because they naturally don't grow blue fur i wouldn't think so no, or fleece i think fleece is the Fle- way, fleece right? right good yeah and so i i asked around and um the guy who was driving the coach or the tour guide whoever i was with said you, you don't know why their backs are blue and i said no should i know why their backs are blue and he said did you notice that some of them have backs that are green and i said were they rolling around in the grass? Did they get grass stains? And he said, no. What we do is we paint the bellies of the male sheep, and oh. we set them out there to have fun with the gals. And then we know who impregnated which sheep based on which color coating there is on the male sheep bellies. That's fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Well, I'm I thought not... that was amazing. I'm now not surprised that we didn't see that in Shaun the Sheep. <laughs> I was wondering where that story was going. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> All right, we'll talk. We'll talk about that and more, and see what more, what other expertise you can bring to the subject of Sean the Sheep, Kristen. Uh, we're also going to talk about Diary of a Teenage Girl, another uh, sex-related film about a young no girl. sheep, no, no sheep. sheep. Thank goodness, <laughs> uh, about a young girl growing up in San Francisco in the seventies. We'll talk about Ricky and the Flash, starring Meryl Streep as a rock musician. And, of course, the latest Marvel movie, Fantastic Four. All that in a moment, but first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. Okay, Kristen, since you're the sheep expert... (laughs) Give us the rundown on Sean the Sheep movie. <laughs> so for anyone familiar with Wallace and Gromit and the TV show Sean the Sheep, you know all about this world. It's adorable. It's British. And we have Sean the Sheep who lives on his farm with the farmer, with his fellow sheep. There are some naughty pigs there. There's, yes. You know, there's some other animals there. But in this particular movie, he and the other sheep are just tired of the same old, same old. Every day they wake up with the rooster. Every day the farmer comes out and he puts them on the exact same schedule every day. This is when you go to pasture. This is when you go back in. Sean and the other sheep say, let's let's do something different. And they're not really saying it because most of the movie they're just gesturing or... Mm. Right. Well, there's no dialogue in yeah. the film. No, no spoken, no what you'd call... There's nothing like a word. No one speaks anything. It's mostly just... Mm. Ooh. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But not at the speedy as you called it, Esperanto-style pace of, yes. of Minions. <laughs> of this the is, Minions. This, this, this is going at a slightly different pace, more pastoral, more British farmer. So uh, Sean and his friends, they escape to the city, but um, it's a big accident. They don't mean to be stuck in the city. They just no. mean to have a day off, and then bad things happen with the farmer as well. Here's a clip. Ba, 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 ba. 
It's John and his buddies. They're singing an old song to try and comfort themselves as they're stuck in the city. And yep. that song really helps them through and it helps connect them in an emotional way to the farmer because that's the farmer's favorite song, too. That's correct. So, Rafer, what did you think about this movie? Well, I'm a huge fan of Aardman Animations, um, and I have been ever since um, Wallace and Gromit. And even those shorts that uh, Nick Park, who's one of the founders, um, I don't know if you remember the shorts that he did where they went around interviewing people at zoos and asking oh, them. Oh, I loved those. Do you remember those? those? And then they yeah. put the people's, the people's taped interviews in the words of animals speaking. Yeah. And so you'd have, you know. I remember a, the lion that the was lion. just like, well, it's an okay life, I suppose, you know, I just. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and uh, and so I loved those. I love Wallace and Gromit. I liked Chicken Run. I like all their stuff. Um, Shaun the Sheep has all those great Ardman qualities. Um, the, the animals are so expressive. With no words, they can express so many emotions. And um, just their eyes, the, their their body language, I always find, is really amazing. Gromit, the dog, I think is like one of the most expressive animated creatures ever. And he's got no mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's he's so great. Everything he's feeling comes across so well. And the same in Shaun the Sheep. Um, I think there's a lot of fun stuff in this movie, A lot of, you know, kid-friendly mayhem and zaniness and slapstick. Um, I like the scene where the the sheep are disguised as, uh, badly disguised as people wandering the city and they stumble into a fancy French restaurant and and cause havoc by eating the menus and doing other sort of disgraceful, ill-mannered things at the table. That's a very funny scene. And there's a lot of stuff like that. There's something about this movie, though, that feels very low-key to me. The energy is just a little bit... Uh, uh, not, I don't want to say dampened, but there's just something. It's, it's not very explosive. I kept yeah. waiting for these really. I, I kept waiting for the zaniness to really to really take off, and it never quite does. But this is British, and it's <laughs> no. I'm, I'm serious, Rafe. We're talking about a subdued British children's TV show that's been Could brought be. to the big screen, Could and be, yeah. and just think about the pacing of like PBS children's British TV. <laughs> Just think right. about that for a second. Okay. Like, how crazy is it going to be? It's not going to be the Minions. True. It's, okay. It, 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 okay. It's, it's not going to be Shrek. No, that's true. You're right. You're right. Um, what? Uh, how did you like it? I mean, did, did you did you find it charming and funny? And oh, did yeah. you laugh out loud? Oh yeah, I thought it was adorable. I mean, I only laughed out loud a couple of times. One because there's um, a certain dog that has kind of crazy eyes in prison. There's yeah. a prison scene. The and, prison scenes are funny. And every time that dog with the crazy eyes is <laughs> focused on, I just but those, I would laugh and laugh. But other than that, it was all just. Knowing smiles, a nod. Yes. This is pleasant. It's sweet. And I really think it's going to be fantastic for anybody maybe over 65 who's babysitting their grandkids and isn't really into the frenetic pacing of a lot of the, you know, Pixar movies now. That's a good point. Or it's going to be great for very, very small kids. So let's say you're hanging out at grandma and grandpa's house and you're sleeping over on a Friday night. This is a great movie once it's on video. But I, I do think it's just for a certain population. I think the folks between... Ages like 9 and 65 probably are going to find it too slow. Anyone older than that and younger than that is probably going to love it. I think you're right. I think it, it's. A, I think that's exactly the right way to put it. It's a good grandparents and kids date. Yeah. Let's turn our attentions to an entirely different film, mm. Diary of a Teenage Girl. I like that we're working up an age group, though. Oh, yeah. Because okay. Sean the Sheep is, you know, it's for preschoolers or for grade schoolers. And now we're moving into this world of a 15-year-old girl in San Francisco. Your stomping grounds, Rafer. That's right. My old stomping grounds. Although I'm not sure how if you'd want to show this film to 
a 15-year-old. Would you? Well, all right. Well, let's, let's talk about this. So uh, it's about a 15-year-old girl living in San Francisco. It's the 70s, the early 70s. And uh, as I think we all know, San Francisco was a pretty wild and woolly town back then. A um, lot of uh, free love and non-monogamous relationships, drugs and... Uh, you know, uh, it was the it was the post hippie era where everything was kind of up for grabs, and the sexual revolution was in full swing, if not on the downswing, perhaps. And uh, this uh, young girl, Minnie, she's living with her mom and her little sister. The mom, played by Kristen Wiig, mom has a boyfriend. Um, uh, seems to be a, a mostly nice guy named Monroe, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Yes, indeed, played very well, I have to say, by Alexander Skarsgård, and. Uh, Lo and behold, Minnie gets it in her head that she'd like to have sex with Monroe, and uh, she does that very thing. Here's a clip. My name is Minnie Getz. I'm recording this onto a cassette tape because my life has gotten really crazy of late. I had sex today. <laughs> if you're listening to this without my permission, please stop now. Just stop. I'm going to kill you! Ah, uh, yes, a 15-year-old person wanting sex. Who ever thought that yes, would happen? Yes, right. Well, a 15-year-old <laughs> girl specifically, right? Yes. Which is, I think, what makes this movie a little interesting. Um, we all know that uh, teenage boys are out uh, chasing it uh, with every last bit of energy they have in their bodies. Oh, my gosh. In the movies, you would think that only boys have sex drives and girls' jobs are to constantly defend themselves against right. boys' desires, which, let's be honest, I was a 15-year-old girl once. That is not true at all. Give us the real truth, Kristen. <laughs> we want sex, too. <laughs> Girls want sex, too. I'm going to put it out there. Any female listening out there is going to nod their head and say, duh. And I think a lot of guys out there will be like, oh, I wish I knew that back then. I, I wish I knew that back then, too. <laughs> Boy, do I ever. Um, this has all come as big news to me. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Uh, I think that's uh, one of the more interesting, if not the main interesting thing about this film. Um, and it takes a very non-judgmental tone toward uh, Minnie's behavior, which um, I'm going to take a slightly judgmental tone, I think gets pretty out of line and and out of control fairly quickly. And um, I have to say, maybe this is the, the, the male patriarchal prude in me. Um, it is. Okay. <laughs> but I found some of Minnie's behavior to be a little difficult to explain a little difficult to reduce just to the fact that she's a hormonally charged adolescent. Um, the 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 boundary that she crosses sleeping with her mother's boyfriend seems pretty egregious to me. And there was and that it's never really explained very well. And I found that kind of it it nagged at me and it 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 troubled me about many in a way that I felt the film never fully resolved. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I can totally see what you're saying there. But I do want to also make it clear to listeners, Alexander Sarsgaard's character doesn't actually come off as predatory or as if he's grooming her either. No, not at all. So it's not a case of we're watching a movie where a 15-year-old's being molested by a no. much older guy. So, Which is also, part of what makes I, the film so interesting, interesting and, and, and unusual. And keeps you as, as a viewer kind of on your toes and kind of fascinated by this very odd but very believable relationship very believable. between this older man and this very young girl. Yeah, and I think that's really believable. I think it's unusual, but we also have to keep in mind, what is the circle of people that her mom is hanging with anyway? Exactly. They all do a lot of drugs. They yes. all make out with each other. They all break into dance parties after drinking six bottles of wine and snorting coke. Yes. And it's 
it's not that unusual if you look at Minnie's upbringing to think like, oh, there are a lot of lines being blurred about what appropriate is, what not appropriate is. Her mom won't touch her, but her mom will touch everybody else. They have a lot of weird rules mm-hmm. set up in their house. Yes. So it, it it's I, – but I do understand what you say about that is nagging somehow and you kind of wish there was more explained about it. Right. Um, that being said, as problematic as that is, because I don't think this is a perfect movie. I really don't. Yeah. I do like the way – her desire is expressed with regard to sex in general and with teenage boys of her own age. There's a really great scene in the movie where she's having sex with a boy her own age. And yes. he's having sex as an inexperienced boy might just like boom, 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 boom. And she's laying there like, and then she just gets on top of him so that she can enjoy herself too. And he just looks completely completely perplexed. Yeah, my like, heart really went out to that guy. Just like, what Minnie, Minnie's happened? already been around the block a few times, and she sort of knows what to expect, and she knows what to ask for, and yeah. what she wants. And this poor kid is like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> that was not what I expected out of my first sexual experience. Yeah, and it's he's a, just I, horrible yeah, at it, and she just great makes scene. it... Yeah, I just think that that was so well done. It was yeah. so well done. There are a lot of really well done things in the film. I love, I think the, the uh, not that I have any clear memory of San Francisco in the 70s, of course, but... Um, Although I think I was there at one point as a kid, but you didn't um, move there till like the eighties, did didn't, you? I moved there in the nineties. Oh, okay. Um, but it, it did it did capture it did capture uh, that kind of that post hippie San Francisco well. Um, and I ha- you know because of my my mom and uh, some of the, my mom's friends, I have some kind of experience with those people and the kind of circles they ran in and their kind of attitudes toward things. I have to say I love the scene where Minnie walks into a head shop and gets her first underground comic, which is a scene that happened to me in Southern California almost verbatim with the old crusty guy behind the counter who says, (laughs) hey, you know, hey, yeah, dig it. You know, you got to take this home and dig it. It'll blow your mind, lady. And I just thought, oh, my God, I know that guy. I've been Minnie. I've taken that comic home and it did blow my mind. And it's an alien Kaminsky Crumb comic. She's the wife of uh, Robert Crumb. So I like a lot of the. I like a lot of the cultural details and the and the the kind of timestamp that this that the movie has, which I think really is effective. And I also think this movie would be a very good companion piece to one of my favorite films, Ginger and Rosa, which I think shows. Oh yeah, you kind loved Ginger and Rosa. Love that movie. Also unapologetically, but yes. also and also crossing lines with people who are inappropriate to sleep with. Very much, and also showing, I think. Um, the downside of uh, the hippie dream, the li- the liberal progressive dream, um, and you know what that can do to a family, and I think that's really interesting and something you don't see on film very much. So I, I even though I, I have some kind of serious bones to pick with the movie, I still thought it was a really good date. I think there are some problems. I think yeah, it doesn't quite know what it wants to do at, at every point. Sometimes it seems to veer off in directions it probably shouldn't. Yeah, but overall, I think it's one of the best depictions of a teenage girl sexuality I think I've ever seen on film. So for that reason alone, I will say this is a good date. All right. We agree. All right, Rafer, it's time to move on to a movie that I think has a lot of people quite curious. It features Meryl Streep playing a rock star, Ricky and the Flash. Yes, uh, directed by Jonathan Demme uh, of Silence of the Lambs and also the, the, one of the more famous concert films uh, ever, The Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense. Yeah, and then written by Diablo Cody, who of we course. know from Juno and some other projects. Uh, a young adult, um, mm-hmm. yeah, Jennifer's Body, not 
the greatest one, but okay, there you go. Uh, yeah, so this is Ricky and the Flash. Uh, Meryl Streep plays Ricky Randazzo. She's uh, an aging rocker. I, I will say right now, I spoke to Jonathan Demme uh, to uh, write a story in this film, and he strenuously objected to uh, the widespread use uh, of the term aging rocker. Whenever whenever he reads about his own movie in uh, in newspapers, he always sees the term aging rocker, and he said, she's just a goddamn rocker. Um, <laughs> so I, apologies to Jonathan Demme for using that phrase yet again, but she is, you know, Meryl Streep is, what, 60s. 65 or 66, so she is a rocker of a certain age. Not a successful one. She's a struggling one. She plays in a, a, a bar band at a little dive bar in Tarzana, California, called the Salt Well. They play covers like, you know, Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen. And uh, she is kind of dating her uh, guitarist, uh, who is played by Rick Springfield, of all people, the actual real-life pop star. And, uh, you know, so she's got this little kind of comfortable, not very uh, lucrative life going. She gets a phone call. It's from her uh, ex-husband, played by Kevin Klein, who says, uh, we need you. Uh, our daughter is going through a divorce and she's having a hard time and I need you to come back. And this is where you realize that Ricky has abandoned her three children many years ago to pursue her dreams. And now she's going to come back and see if she can maybe be some kind of mother to them again. Here's a clip. I'm Ricky Randazzo and uh, I'd like to introduce my band. The Flash. Now, that daughter is actually Meryl Streep's real-life daughter, Mimi Gummer, correct? She plays uh, Julie, who's going through a divorce and has hit kind of a depressive uh, uh, nadir in her life. Uh, when we first see her, her hair is a mess, and uh, she's you know clearly been sleeping all day. She's on uh, some kind of antidepressant. She's, she's snarling and hostile and angry at uh, Ricky for, for coming back. At the same time, you can kind of tell that she's in some small way kind of glad to see her mother again. Um, as the film progresses, uh, you learn some things about Ricky um, that I think, uh, frankly, make you like her a little less. And I think that's one of the problems with this film. I think this movie wants to be a movie that asks the question, why is it okay for men to uh, leave their families behind and pursue a career and then come back later on and make amends and everything's okay, as we see so often in movies. Um, but when a woman does it, that's not cool, you know, and, and uh, Ricky at in one point basically gives that speech and says, you know, Mick Jagger's got seven kids and he didn't raise them, but when a mom misses one PTA meeting, suddenly she's a monster. Um, well, one problem here is that Ricky has not missed one PTA meeting. She's missed her entire years of, children's yeah. lives, three three children, um, and she abandoned them, if I can tell by the film's very, very vague timeline. I would say she was roughly 30 or so when she left these kids, and those kids would have been somewhere in the 10-year-old area. And I just have to say, I'm sorry, maybe I'm falling into Diablo Cody's trap, but that just seems totally unforgivable to me. Well, do you find it unforgivable when a man does that as well? Or do you not find that unforgivable when a man does it? Like, you know, it's true. All these rock stars, everyone from McTagger, and then you have Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Sure. Like it, he didn't even, like, he wasn't even a father to Liv Tyler until she was, like, already full grown pretty much. Sure. And now they're all buddy buddy and, and everything's all, great. Yeah. And it constantly happens. It we does. see it all the time. So are you okay then when it's a guy doing it? I mean, n not necessarily. I I guess there's this weird thing of, you know, um, 
there's something about this idea of abandoning a kid at birth versus abandoning abandoning a kid when he or she is ten. Um, I, I'm I, maybe it's a distinction without a difference, but um, if you're, I think they're both horrible. Well, they're both horrible, but there is I just there's something a little more heartless and shocking about someone who would walk out on a ten year old. And just leave yeah. that child. Uh, well, a and, baby probably won't remember or notice. Well, exactly. Um, but there are other things that I think Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, has done wrong here. I think she's trying to make Ricky a very well fleshed out character and not just a start a, a stock archetype. To to Diablo Cody's credit, I think that's the right instinct. But she does a few odd things. She makes um, Ricky a bit of a racist. She makes these kind of anti-Obama jokes that seem a little jarring to me and very odd for someone that would be kind of a classic rock era, ostensibly hippie era product. Um, That seems odd. She makes her also fairly openly homophobic, even toward her gay son. Um, And that seems odd to me. And then you couple that with the fact that she just left her family and left her ex-husband and now is trying to come back and make some kind of a difference. The problem is the movie sets you up for this expectation. Oh, I left my kids. This is a horrible thing. But I still have something to offer and I'm going to come back and maybe teach them something and maybe give something of myself to them and heal these wounds. And the film wants to trick you into thinking that's happening. But in reality... Ricky doesn't have anything to offer. She she can't heal any wounds. The family was actually uh, – Kevin Klein is remarried uh, to – Audra McDonald plays his new wife. He's remarried, and they're actually surviving pretty well without her. Ricky doesn't belong there. She's got not, she's, she doesn't – she has nothing to give these children. And so in the end, you kind of feel like I, I, I don't really like this character. I don't understand why she's come back. I don't understand why anyone would take her back. And I don't really want her to be part of that family anymore. Aww. And that seems to be the opposite of what the film is trying to convey. <laughs> so even though I think Meryl Streep is pretty good in this role and it's fun to see her play, do her own singing and play her own guitar with a real band. All the musicians in her band are real session musicians, wow. uh, um, including the legendary keyboardist Bernie Worrell, who's played with everyone under the sun. Um, and obviously Rick Springfield, who's actually really good in the film. He gets some of the best scenes yeah. in the Wasn't movie. Wasn't he like on General Hospital or something yes, back he, in the day? Yes, he was briefly. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and he and Meryl Streep actually make a, a kind of a cool couple. But um, the film just doesn't make its point. And I think uh, on a feminist platform, it fails to make its point as well. I think it wanted to be almost like the female version of Crazy Heart or something, mm. and it just doesn't work. So I'm going to say, and I'm sad to say it, that Ricky and the Flash is just not a very good date. Oh, what a shame. I, I really know. wanted to see this. I oh, know. What a shame. Sorry, guys. You happy? I'm happy, too. All right, let's move on to our big action multi-million dollar crazy superhero showcase of a movie, Fantastic Four. All right, so Fantastic Four. We have four people, all of them just high school-aged kids. We have Miles Teller. We have Kate Morrow. We have Michael Jordan from Fruitvale Station, a movie that you and I both liked quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We have Jamie Bell. And 
all of them are working on their science experiments. Miles Teller's character in particular has been working since grade school on a teleportation system. And he gets recruited along with his buddy Jamie Bell at a high school science fair, which, by the way, they're all like 30 or whatever. Yeah, well, yes, yes, but that's, again, as we've always said, that's a long tradition in the movies. Oh, God, why? That makes no 30 sense. 30-year-olds playing 17-year-olds. Yeah. Anywho, so... He and Jamie Bell get recruited by this top secret organization that is making different kinds of technologies, partly for the military, partly for the betterment of humanity. Who knows what's going on here? They get recruited. There they meet up with Kate Mara and her brother, Michael Jordan, their siblings, and their father, who's overseeing a lot of the operations of the secret world, uh, is Dr. Franklin Storm, played by Reg E. Caffey. And so we have Dr. Storm. We have all these kids. We have these teleportation systems that are being developed. Who knows what's going to happen? Oh, of course we do know what's going to happen because most of us know from, what was it, six months ago when the last franchise of Fantastic Four came out. No, that's not true. It was 2005. It just is way too recent, okay? (laughs) It was 10 years ago. It's way too recent. We do not need a reboot right now. And I understand you have to reboot things to hold on to the licensing properties and yada, yada, yada. But anywho. That, that's another story. We, we don't need to get into that. We need to just focus on whether or not this film is any good. So they make this teleportation system. It takes them to places that they don't know where they're going. It's another another planet call, in another dimension. Yeah, they call it Planet Zero. And right. The, the makeup of the planet, there seems to be like glowing lava. There seems to be weird powdery substances, rocks that are magnetic in ways that they can't quite understand. And when you're on this planet, things about your body seem to change. So they get transported there. Some of them come back. Not all of them do. And when they come back, their bodies have been completely changed. Of course, we have Thing, one of the most famous ones. Jamie Bell gets kind of turned into this rock man. Yep. He's a man and he's a rock. Yeah. A bunch of rocks. Yep. Uh, he's a rock man. <laughs> thing. We have Kate Mara, who suddenly can do things involving invisibility and floating and force fields. We have... Miles Teller, who can stretch in all sorts of crazy ways. He can take his arm and go like the length of a football field and punch somebody with that arm. And then we have Michael Jordan, who is a ball of fire, and he can move through space like a comet. He can fly so fast with his fire. So these are the four kids. And then we have Dr. Storm, who's trying desperately to find a way to cure all of the kids to, you know, especially thing. My God, how horrible is it to be a rock man? Yeah, it'd be pretty bad. I, I would hate that. He got the short end of the stick. He really did. I would take any of those other powers over being a rock human. I agree. Seems like the worst, the very worst. So here's a clip. You basically ripped a hole in the fabric of space-time with unspecked components and no supervision. Yeah, that was uh, an accident. And if by accident you upped the power, you would have created a runaway reaction that opened a black hole and swallowed the entire planet. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Well, first of all, you know, just listening to your plot synopsis made me realize what, all over again just what a convoluted, nonsensical mess their entire origin story is. It just makes no sense whatsoever. No, I, the black holes, the planet zero. I can't the tell what no planet zero is supposed to be or where it's supposed to be, what's going on with it, where it came from, why it's there, why it affects them the way that it does. Uh, none of that makes any sense to me. And uh, when they get back to Earth and they have acquired their their superpowers, um, their superpowers all seem kind of tragic and hellish and grotesque. And I I think that's one problem. You know, everybody wants to be able to fly, 
Like, I would love to be able to fly and have, you know, heat lasers shoot out of my eyes. That sounds cool. Or I'd love to, you know, be able to thrust my palm forward the way that Iron Man does and just knock someone on his ass. All that stuff sounds terrific. Here's what I don't want. I don't want my body to be transformed into a giant, painful rock structure. I don't want to be... um, uh, an eternal burn victim like Michael B. Jordan, who's the human torch. Also, why can he fly? No idea. And I don't <laughs> want, I don't, what I really don't want is to be uh, Miles Teller as Captain, uh, Mr. Fantastic, excuse me, whose name, by the way, is never, uh, none of these, none of these people's uh, superhero names are ever really mentioned in the movie as, aside from Thing. Yeah. Um, but, but Miles Teller plays Mr. Fantastic, who can stretch. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want my body to get stretched out into some, like, elongated piece of Coney Island taffy that looks all grotesque and weird and, and skinny. And all of them are in pain all the time, too. Yeah, right. They make it clear that they're in pain, but they get used to the pain. Right. And to be living in chronic pain? There's something they kind They have of, drugs for that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of grotesque. Um, there's something really, particularly to me, grotesque about the Miles Teller character when his when his arms stretch that way. And he looks all like a, he looks like a combination of a torture victim and a concentration camp I'm victim sorry, or something. I'd still rather be him than the rock human. Oh, okay, I agree. I mean, maybe you'd, maybe you'd want to be the torch since it'd be kind of cool to be on fire and burn other people but not be burning yourself. No, but, but he's even screaming that... and in pain for the first year that he's, <laughs> he's in so much pain. And here's the problem. None of these characters are very interesting, particularly Kate Mara as Sue Storm. She's I give so, lots of speeches. She's so I am somebody who knows how to use computers and give speeches. She's just snippy and bitchy. And then when and then and then she turns invisible. And I thought, you know what? Serves you right, right? I wish you were invisible. Get out of here. She's such an unpleasant character, and you never. Aside from the fact that when uh, uh, Doctor Doom, played by uh, Toby Kebbell, who's actually quite good, he plays Victor and later to be called Doctor Doom who also returns from that planet with kind of Darth Vader-ish superpowers. You know, when he shows up, they all find a common purpose and they're going to band together. But they don't seem to like each other much. Uh, You know, uh, there's just nothing. There's no chemistry. There's no bonding there. And I'm just going to say it. I think these are stupid characters with stupid (laughs) superhero powers. And a stupid storyline, and the whole th- they just the whole the, the whole idea of the Fantastic Four just seems like a bad idea to me. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so I feel that I don't have any street cred to say that because no, you everybody, do. No, because everybody always says back to me, you don't like any superhero movies. Well, I know so it doesn't I, right. sound as convincing when I say it. But, but you do like some, and I like some. I like and, one out of every thirty. And they're not. <laughs> that's okay. That's true. The only good thing I can say about this movie is that it's only an hour and thirty nine minutes. It is pretty short. Thank God for that. I was shocked at how bad this was. A terrible, terrible date. Awful date. Awful date. Surprisingly bad. Terrible date. All right, well, stay with us because after the break, we're going to be talking with the great actor Joel Edgerton about his new film, The Gift, which he doesn't just star in, but he also wrote and directed. I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And Rafer, what's in that package? That package? Yeah. I'd say it looks like a gift. <laughs> oh, Kristen. I'm so slow on the uptake. <laughs> Those are, we have these beautiful packaged gifts in front of us. They were a gift from Joel Edgerton, which was so nice of him because he came in. We got to talk with him. 
What kind of celebrity brings you presents? I know that was so. It that was, was so. so that was lovely. And mine turned out to be actually a book I really would like. It's all about uh, uh, scotch and whiskey and spirits. And mine was the story of a little lonely spork. Oh, a spork. Because, you know, I used to work on the sporkful. Yeah, you should give that to Dan Pashman. I did. I did give it to Dan Pashman. Can I tell you something funny? You re-gifted Joe Legerton's gift. (laughs) I know. Jeez. Can can I tell you something funny I saw the other day? Yeah. Spooning leads to forking. Oh, that's yeah, good. Have you ever seen that? No, but that's cartoon. good. I saw it on a T-shirt, and it showed spoons and forks. Oh, that's good. So that's naughty. Good. Oh boy. And then you get a sport. I'm glad. That, I'm glad the cheeky T-shirt is still around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this new movie, Joel Edgerton, in, is called The Gift. Now, mm-hmm. in this movie, he's playing one of those people who's 20 years or so out of high school, running into somebody that he knew in high school. The guy he runs into is played by Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman was clearly a popular kid in high school. He's now doing very well in his securities company. He's moved back to his hometown in California with his beautiful wife, played by Rebecca Hall. And then Joel Edgerton runs into them in the mall one day and is like, hey, guys. Well, I won't explain further. I'll I'll just play this clip, and then we'll hear from Joel Edgerton. Hey, uh, excuse me. Hi. Hi. I'm I'm, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, I think I know you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't. Can't place you. Uh, is your name Simon? Simon Cowell. Yeah, Simon. Hi. Oh. Uh, How do we know you, each other? Oh, I thought. I. Uh, I went. We went to school together. Really? Yeah. Huh. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> that was the terrifying sort of uh, inception of the movie for me. Was that that very moment happening in my own life? Not. Not that it did happen. I'm saying that the idea of. You know, I'm 20, think, I think I'm 22 or 23 years out of high school now. Uh, the idea that someone could come and tap you on the shoulder and, and say that, you know, that, they, that they're familiar with you, that, that you went to high school together, and just what that would mean if you weren't such a great person. <laughs> has, that, has that ever happened the other way around where you've tapped on someone's shoulder and uh, said, hey, I went to high school with you. And they're like, we have no idea of who you are. I definitely have had a few moments where I've run into old high school acquaintances. In fact, I have had uh, and, and I will admit that I was both, uh, you know, Simon in the film is is uh, essentially a guy who wasn't such a good person at school, Jason Bateman's character. And I was essentially the victim of certain incidents. So but. Uh, and, and that's only to say that, um, you know, I, I was both of those characters at school. I, I remember being a very mean kid at times and I remember feeling what it was like to be bullied and and one particular incident where uh, some kids sort of messed with me in a way that I was so young I felt really in danger and to them it was just it was like a kitten playing with a little, you know, ball or something. They didn't realise how scared they were making me and it, and it it blew into the situation where kids were suspended from school and this one kid never came back. And I was oh. terrified of the idea that I'd caused them trouble and that they would come and hurt me, you know. And years later, I got a tap on the shoulder in a cafe in, in Sydney. And he's like, do you, rem- do you remember me? And I, I was sort of a bit scared. And he said his name. And the moment he said his name, I, I, I was like terrified. And he said, no, I, I just want to apologize. Um, and the, and the, the fact that I left the school was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, but, but I wasn't a very happy kid and I'm sorry. And it was kind of an amazing moment because, I, I, you know, just hearing the guy's name sent sort of chills down my spine.
That's very rare, I think, that you get a chance to kind of face those ghosts from your past like that. Well, we all have them, I think. And, and you know, one thing that occurred to me writing the film, uh, which I did over a number of years, a few years, uh, was that m- m- the last 10 or 15 years of my life are a relative blur in terms of the people I've met and it's very transient. I'm constantly on the move. Those years I had in high school are so etched on my brain in a way that people's first and last names are, are immediately on recall. Events that happened are so clear to me um, that, that school holds that place for us that was so wonderful and terrible and everything in between that it, it just felt like good material to uh, begin what is essentially a thriller but, but um, something that had a kind of a social resonance in that regard, you know. But you have such a great perspective on this because I think that a lot of the narratives around high school really do set it up so people are essentially just bullies or just victims. Mm-hmm. And in real life and in your film, you know, there's not any black and white to how we are as human beings. And you are playing a character who is much more nuanced than just a victim or just a, you know, yeah. any, any specific and definition. also in the spirit of the kind of movie that it is, which, you know, it, it is very firmly one foot in the genre world, is is the spirit of those movies is that it, nothing is really what it seems. And that extends for us in terms of character in the drama of this story is, you know, the the person that you think is the villain and the person you think of the hero, they're not just those things. And they they actually have a chance in the story of sort of somewhat swapping roles. And I think that that's indicative of my intentions as an actor whenever I approach a role is is looking for, uh, you know, for lack of better expression, like the darkness in the light and the lightness in the darker character so that, that a villain is not a villain. A villain is, is a series of actions and that you can also empathise with them and vice versa. A hero is almost less interesting to me if they don't have some moral grey area of their own. You called it a thriller um, and that was one of the things that interested me when I first saw the posters for this film. Because um, I always think it's kind of interesting when an actor or a filmmaker shows a side of himself that you might not have expected. Like, for instance, um, Elijah Wood is a huge horror film fan. You know, mm. who knew? Uh, and so you chose for this film, for your directorial debut, you chose a thriller. Mm. And I was just curious, is that sort of a pet genre of yours? You know, my mother, when I was growing up, if it had a a knife or the title was in blood red on the front cover of the the video cassette, she would rent it and I got to watch it. Too Uh young an age, I would argue, like the Death Wish trilogy and Jagged Edge and all these movies. So I was raised on those movies. And then when I went to university, I discovered, you know, quality cinema uh, of, uh, you know, I dove into Hitchcock movies and, got excited by the mystery uh, and the unfurling of really interesting story that was tethered completely to character, you know, and not just about uh, a flimsy, thrilling ride. Uh, and I really loved the intrigue of those stories, particularly if they were, as I say, rooted in some kind of real life situation. Um, and I, uh, my, my taste as an actor is like wild and varied. And sometimes that's just because you eat what's on your plate. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to writing, I have this real sort of dark tone to things, but I really want it to belong in the real world. Do you like playing good guys or bad guys better? <laughs> I don't mind twirling the mustache, I, you know, which <laughs> I have done. Um, I, 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 I like complicated characters, uh, and I never see them as good or bad. I mean, I'm, I, I, 
I've got a film coming out later this year, Black Mass, where I, I couldn't tell you whether he's a good or a bad guy. He does some bad things, but he's, he sort of feels like he's doing something good. And I love that complexity as a writer, as an actor, and now as a director, I, I think because that's what we all are, hopefully at the end of the day when we count our chips, most of them were, were, were spent on good deeds rather than bad. But you, any moment of any day we could fall into the other, other category. And sometimes the hero is just less of an interesting character. Just as a side note, I think for a lot of listeners – this will probably be the first time they've heard you speak in your native Australian accent. I think most of the films that uh, that Americans have seen, you've played American roles in this in this film in the Gift. Uh, no, right right here right now as as we're oh, as we're right, speaking. Oh, I thought, I, thought I, got, I really got it wrong, didn't I? Uh, strong yeah, American maybe, accent, strong maybe. Australian accent. Actually, on that note, if you uh, you know if you want, there's there's there are a couple of you know quality Australian movies that I think are worth seeing. And no, I feel like now I'm giving myself an unashamed plug here. That's all right. Go for it. Uh, you know, we have a little outfit in Australia, a little collective called Blue Tongue Films. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those films, The Gift, but, but um, Animal Kingdom, uh, which David Michaud made, I, I play a small part in, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a movie well worth watching also. Jackie Weaver. Ben, Jackie yep. Weaver and yeah. Ben Mendelsohn. Great Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, and and a, a couple of other lesser known films, The Square, which my brother directed, that I wrote, uh, and uh, which is also a very dark thriller. That's Nash Edgerton. Nash Edgerton, yes. my brother, uh, who helped me actually as a director when I was in front of the camera. Nash was my outside eye on the gift. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a film called Wish You Were Here, which uh, uh, another member of our collective made, which you know is well worth seeing. Then you can hear me talk in an Australian accent all you want. <laughs> <laughs> No subtitles. <laughs> All right. Excellent. <laughs> well, Joel Edgerton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Joel Edgerton's movie, The Gift, is in theaters today. And now, Kristen, it's time to go. But before we do, trivia. Woohoo! Let's learn about stuff that we don't need to know about. Yes. All about movie. <laughs> My favorite thing to do. Uh, last week's trivia, Kristen? Well, we were talking about the movie Vacation and, you know, those trips you go on where things don't always go quite right. So we played a clip of a movie of people who go on a trip and things just don't go as planned on this vacation. Here's the clip. Now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors, we were attacked by a lycanthrope, a werewolf. I was murdered. An unnatural death. And now I walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf's curse is lifted. We got loads and loads of answers yes. about what that terrible vacation movie was. Here is one of them. Hey, Rafer and Kristen, this is Alec from Richmond, California, and I am answering the trivia question this week, which I believe is the American Werewolf in London, or an American Werewolf in London. I think that voice is Griffin Dunn who is wonderfully decaying throughout the movie, as I recall. And I believe also it was directed by John Landis. So thanks and love the show. Bye. That is correct, Alex. Alex, great job. Right on all counts, an American werewolf in London. That is Griffin Dunn. Uh, um, David Naughton, of course, plays the American werewolf himself. And uh, yes, Griffin Dunn is decaying throughout the entire film, but he's got <laughs> a great, a great sense of humor about it. He picks up the little Mickey Mouse figure and says, hi, David. 
Um, yeah, and it was directed by John Landis, of course. So uh, that is the correct answer. And uh, what's this week's trivia, Kristen? Well, this week in honor of Ricky and the Flash, we were thinking about movies where rock stars decide to be actors, much like Rick Springfield, who plays uh, the boyfriend of Ricky. It doesn't always go that well, <laughs> as, Rick, as it did for Rick Springfield. But yes, many, yeah, many rockers Many, have many rockers actors. have tried to act. And yeah. So anywho, we're going to play a clip of a movie in which a rock star is acting. Here's that movie. So one more issue and we're wiped out. Yeah. Larry, you said yourself it's not so bad to be poor. Hey, f*** you, Althea. You go be poor, okay? Me? Uh, I believe you're the one that got us into this debt in the first place. Listen, you think just because it's your birthday that you can be a bitch? Yeah. Don't ever hit me like that again. Ooh, who's that rock star rafer? Oh, I know who it is. You know. And so do you, Kristen. But do you, listeners, do you know? If you do, give us a call. Name that rock star. Name that movie. Call us at 5717movies. Or you can message us at facebook.com slash movie date podcast. 